I was trained as a historian. I mean, I was lucky enough, really, really fortunate when I was studying history to be taught by uh, Christopher Andrew, Professor Christopher Andrew of, of Cambridge University, who many of your listeners will know is a leading historian of the uses and abuses of intelligence. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In 1960, it was discovered that crucial secrets from the world-leading submarine research base at Portland in Dorset were being stolen by a British man and his mistress. The couple were tailed by MI5 watchers to a covert meeting with a Canadian businessman, Gordon Lonsdale. The unsuspecting Lonsdale, in turn, led MI5 spy catchers to an innocent-looking couple in suburban Ricelip called the Krogers. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too, plus you get that sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a monthly financial supporter, and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Please leave a written review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really helps us get new guests on the show. I am delighted to welcome Trevor Barnes to our Cold War conversation. Why write about this story now? What What's changed? Well, what's changed in particular is the fact that MI5 has released almost all, I'll talk about which ones it hasn't released yet, almost all of its files on this. But of course... Um, that in itself isn't enough because having decided that the story really need to be told using those documents as a basis, I wanted to go and sound the, the, the depths of other potential sources, in particular in Russia, which is fascinating to get a, a little bit of new detail from um, individuals who I met when I was over there. And then also in America, because one of the key features of this spy ring was that its capture was a truly international effort. So MI5 was holding the steering wheel, but it was having to make sure that it was getting input from all around the all around the world, really. Right, right. And we will uh, expand into that further, particularly your trip to uh, meet the Russian intelligence services as well um so uh, we keep the listeners tantalized now can you just quickly summarize what the portland spy ring was yeah the portland spy ring was a ring of five spies and they first of all came to the attention of mi5 or one of them did in an unexpected way at the start of 1960 what happened was was that there was, um, in the 1950s and early 60s, an absolutely crucial top-secret underwater research centre based at Portland on the Dorset coast. And it was here that Britain and NATO 
centred a lot of its absolutely crucial naval underwater research. That's torpedoes, submarines, sonar, and so on and so forth. It meant that the Russian intelligence services were very much focused on penetrating a centre like that. And one of the things was that, and it's a bit of a surprise, because in early 1960, there was a, a man who worked at the centre at Portland who received an anti-Semitic letter, a, a swastika, and there was a, an anti-Semitic statement made in it. And this man was understandably shocked and distressed. And he said, I think there was a man at this place, Portland, who sent this to me. The institution, by the way, was called the Underwater Detection Establishment, the UDE. A man called Harry Houghton was the man he pointed the finger at. And so the wheels of investigation started to turn. The local police in Dorset, whose job it was to investigate potential anti-Semitic comments, referred the matter to MI5. And the reason they did that was that the man who'd received the letter said that this man Houghton, he thought, had been accused a few years before of inappropriately looking at secret documents, taking them out of the safe. But he wasn't very clear about it. But before MI5 could really get started on the case, there was far, far more important intelligence, which suddenly exploded like a thunderclap over the MI5 team that was starting to think about looking into Houghton. And this information was from the CIA. And this was the first instance where the CIA had an absolutely crucial role to play in this investigation. And what happened was that they said they had recruited an agent somewhere in Eastern Europe. And the identity of this agent was not known, but the code name was Sniper. Um, MI5 gave the same agent a, a different code name. They called the same agent Lavinia. I mean, no one, by the way, knew if this spy was male or female. And this spy said, look, back in the early 1950s, there was a man who, or a person who was recruited in the military attache's office or naval attache's office in Warsaw. And then a year or two later, this person was posted back to the UK, was then run by the KGB. And this person's name begins with an H something like Hupkenner. So obviously at that moment, MI5 set the alarm bells ringing. They investigated, and there was only one potential candidate who could fulfill that um, set of requirements and characteristics. He was Harry Houghton. And to rush the story forward, Harry Houghton started to be investigated. He came up to London with his girlfriend, whose name was Ethel G, who also worked with him at Portland. So then you've got two potential spies, both at Portland, and on a visit to London, they met up with a mysterious man who was a Canadian businessman, or so it seemed at the time, who went by the name of Gordon Lonsdale. And Lonsdale was then followed. Um, the Canadians were then brought into the picture to try and work out who this guy might be. Lonsdale then in turn, and there's lots of things going on, by the way, in between all these different events, but in short, he led... MI5 then out to the northwest suburb of Ryslip to a bungalow at 45 Cranley Drive that was lived in by 
what appeared to be an antiquarian bookseller and his wife, by going by the name of Peter Kroger and Helen Kroger. And it was thought by MI5 that they were acting as communications operators for Gordon Lonsdale. And by this stage, MI5 had become convinced that Gordon Lonsdale was, in fact, um, a Russian illegal deep cover spy. And they then started to keep a careful watch on the Krogers. They tapped their telephone, for example, as well. And then there was another key intervention at that moment by the CIA. And that was on the 4th of January 1961, when Sniper, he was the CIA agent who provided the original vital clue that led MI5 to Harry Outer. That person turned out to be a man, Sniper, said, I'm going to defect in the next 24 hours. Get ready to receive me. So the CIA in Berlin was put on red alert. Uh, this man pitched up. It turned out his real name was um, Mikhail Golonievsky. He was working for the Polish intelligence service at a very, very high level. And it was he who had been feeding material to the CIA, very important intelligence, for the previous couple of years or so. This, of course, meant that there was a real risk, MI5 realized, of the KGB understanding that all the people who Golonievsky had any knowledge of in Western intelligence who might be um, working for the KGB could be exposed. And therefore, they had to roll up the Portland spy ring, these five spies, um, immediately. And so they organized um, an arrest of all the five spies on the 7th of January, 1961. Right, right. That is a really good summary. The book carries a lot more detail. One of the questions I had, which which comes up in the book, is that Houghton's wife had raised concerns about him spying for the Russians sometime before, hadn't she? She did. It was a moment of a great embarrassment within the security service, I can tell you, when all this emerged. And it emerged, in fact, before Sniper had provided the vital intelligence, really highlighting Houghton. And what had happened was that back in 1956, after Harry Houghton had returned from the Warsaw Embassy with his tail between his legs, because he turned out to have been a pretty incompetent. Um, his boss said that, you know, he thought he could his typing with his toes most of the time. And he also had a very, very bad uh, love affair with the bottle. And by all accounts, he was a really dreadful husband, um, abused his wife both verbally and physically. And, and when they went out to Warsaw, their accommodation was um, not very comfortable. Harry Houghton, who always had a chip on his shoulder that was the size of uh, Mount Everest, um, was very, very unhappy with the fact that he felt he was treated in a way unfairly compared with people who were better educated and or higher up the Navy hierarchy um, in Warsaw. And he'd been sent back early, in short, from Warsaw. And when they came back to England, uh, their marriage deteriorated further. And Mrs. Houghton, as she was at the time, spotted some uh, very dubious behaviour on the part of her husband. And she 
reported these to the Admiralty in Portland. And they, in turn, it turned out, had decided that they would have a double check on Houghton with MI5. You've got to bear in mind, in the 1950s, uh, security checks were really pretty uh, relaxed compared with what they were um, by the early 60s when you had a whole series of you know, terrible security fiascos, whether it be Burgess, McLean, Blake, and a whole lot of other things. And what they did was ask MI5 for a negative clearance, as it was called, on um, Harry Houghton. And so they wrote off to MI5 and said, can you do a check on, on this guy, which MI5 did. And the, the file came into, a, I must say, a, a rather unfortunate young man called Duncan Wow, and he did a check and couldn't find any file in the famous registry of MI5 that was right down in the bowels of MI5 headquarters in Leckenfield House in Mayfair. And the letter, however, from the Admiralty had said, um, on the face of it, we don't think there's anything to these allegations against Harry Houghton. We think they're basically the ravings of a scornful and rejected wife. And this young MI5 guy um, sort of, in effect, echoed that language when he wrote back. But um, it turned out to haunt MI5 later when the full story emerged with the arrest of the, the five spies that they had, in theory, had a chance to capture Harry Houghton back in 1956. Right, right. And that, this is sort of an indication of what the UK and a lot of the rest of the world was at that time in, in terms of very much a gender bias. A woman's view of a story would be dismissed or, or carry less weight than a, a, a man's version. Unfortunately, yes. I mean, there, there were a very, very small handful of um, female officers within MI5 um, in the early 50s. The figures actually, Ian, aren't very clear. But there were a very small number. Mm. In fact, one of the most distinguished was um, a woman called Evelyn McBarnett, who, who played a role um, in this story, um, in investigating um, the life story of Gordon Lonsdale with the main MI5 officer, a very interesting man called Charles Elwell. But the, the other officer, um, actually wasn't a part of this case, but was um, Charles Elwell's wife. And she was a very, very interesting woman, highly intelligent, um, who joined MI5 during the war, um, spoke and, and read fluent German, French and Italian. And after the war, in fact, her Italian was so good, she was sent out by MI5 to help translate the letters and documents of Mussolini. And after the war, in turn, Anne Glass, because that was her unmarried name, um, played a role in investigating Burgess and McLean after their defection. But that was before she then met and married Charles Elwell. And again, this is a reflection of the, uh, frankly, what appear to today ridiculous and unfair rules. You could not have a married couple both working in MI5 at the time. If um, a couple got married, then one of them had to leave the service. And, of course, with the sexist attitudes at the time, 
that was automatically assumed to be the woman. And so this incredibly capable woman, Anne Glass, when she married uh, Charles Elwell, had to leave the service. But you're absolutely right. I mean, overall, one of the themes in the book, and it's a, a bit distressing at times, is the way in which women were um, not regarded as properly as they should, not treated properly. And it, it's very interesting when you read the documents now to think how things might have played out totally differently today in certain respects. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think one of, one of the... One of the good aspects of the book that I enjoyed is is the the cast of characters in there and how you describe them. Uh, is it Elwell whose photo is found amongst Lonsdale's possessions? Uh, yeah, it, it's quite a remarkable incident, that one. Uh, the background was that Gordon Lonsdale, first of all, came to the attention of MI5 at the start of July in 1960. When Harry Houghton came up to London with his girlfriend or mistress, Ethel G. Uh, it's quite interesting, by the way, with the times we live in with, you know, exposés in newspapers and talk about sex. Because although they obviously had some sort of relationship, Ethel G. lived with her elderly mother and shared a bedroom with her in a little area called Fortune's Well, which is on the Isle of Portland on the coast, and also two elderly and infirm relatives. And although she used to go and visit um, Harry Houghton quite frequently in his cottage, um, she never stayed overnight. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And we know this because one of the informants that MI5 recruited was a neighbour of Harry Houghton with the rather splendid name of Cyril Bogust, and he was a special sergeant um, in the Dorset Constabulary whose house, lived in a house that over, overlooked Harry Houghton. So he agreed to basically spy on his neighbour. And he would produce regular reports that were sent to the Dorset police that would then be forwarded to MI5. And they, they're very interesting because they chart the kind of rather risque life in certain ways that um, – Harry Houghton led. But anyway, just reverting to the main story. So Harry Houghton came up to London with um, Ethel G. And the times they did seem to spend the night together was when they came up to London because they would stay in the Cumberland Hotel. And they, at the first meeting in July, they met this unknown man who took a few days to identify. MI5 first of all made a mistake and thought, 
this unknown man was in fact a Polish intelligence officer called Kowalski. But when they tracked through his car number plate um, of a rather splendid, uh, well, at that stage it wasn't splendid, but it was quite a good car, um, they tracked it through. They discovered that it was a Canadian businessman called Gordon Lonsdale. So they followed that through. And Lonsdale came up to London again at the start of August. But then he just disappeared. He literally vanished at the end of August, having been followed to a bank in Great Portland Street and was seen to take in two attache cases and a deed box. MI5 had no idea where he'd gone. There was no trace of him leaving the country. Um, they immediately contacted the Canadians and they didn't know where he'd gone. Lonsdale had, had said to the estate agent who he worked with, this was part of a tap telephone um, message, that he'd be back towards the end of September. But MI5 didn't know. And this gave MI5 a really interesting opportunity to take a big, big risk, which was, shall we go into that bank and have a look at that safety deposit box? And they decided that they would take that risk. And because they didn't do it with a search warrant, in a certain way, you could argue that they burgled it. I mean, they did, of course, get permission from the bank. They went right to the, the very top. They uh, went to the permanent secretary of the Treasury, no less, Bertrand, later Sir Bertrand, um, who your listeners will probably remember as being the person who did the big investigation into Hollis, Sir Roger Hollis, then head of MI5. Was he a Russian spy? Wasn't he a Russian spy? That was a trend report. Um, trend um, went to the chairman of the Midland Bank, and the Midland Bank said, yep, I will let you go in, but you must give us an indemnity. You must ensure that if there's any problems at all, you are going to cover us. So um, on the afternoon of Friday, the 12th of September, uh, MI5 went into the bank, uh, and with two bank employees, they took everything that was in the safety deposit box of Gordon Lonsdale to their top secret laboratory, which was very near St. Paul's Cathedral. And coming to this photograph in a moment, when they opened up the various things, MI5 had their own special locksmith, a splendid man who, who'd been in the armed forces. They used to go around wearing an undertaker's suit. His name was... Um, this is true, it was called Jagger, but he he was well over six foot and had shoulders like an armchair, but he had an incredibly delicate touch with picking locks. And so he picked the locks of these attache cases. And amongst the things that they found, they found a mm -hmm. stash of photographs. Amongst them, it turned out, was a photograph um, of Charles Elwell, the man who was the MI5 officer leading the investigation. So at the time, Alwell didn't realise this because there were so many of these photographs. Um, Lonsdale was taking photographs right, left and centre and he obviously put them in his attaché case and then really looked at um, overnight. So early in the next week when Alwell came into work, he was summoned up to basically have an interrogation with the head of counter-espionage, a man called Martin Furlan-Jones. And you could understand why, because here they were, and they found other evidence in that safety deposit box, which 
confirm beyond doubt that Gordon Lonsdale was a KGB spy. Obviously, if you find a photograph of one of your key MI5 officers in there, you think something very funny is going on here. I think my guy might actually be working for the other side. And fortunately, Charles Elwell could dispel this worry straight away. He, he said, look, show me the photograph. And then he recognized the woman he was with in that photograph as being a family friend. And he also recognized where it was taken. It was taken in a flat, which is at the back of his house, just north of um, Hyde Park. And he said, this is the circumstances in which that photograph was taken. We had a Canadian diplomat who rented that uh, flat at the back of our house. And this man, Lonsdale, came to that party. And my wife, Anne, who I've had a moment, referred to a moment ago, she can confirm my story. And so MI5 sent a car over to Anne Glass. Charles Elwell wasn't allowed to talk to her in advance, obviously, to confirm that if he was a KGB spy, he couldn't tip her off. And Anne Glass um, confirmed the same story as Charles Elwell had said. And it all ended up hunky-dory because they went off to the MI5 canteen and had lunch together. <laughs> there's loads of uh, little stories like that in the book, which I think that there's just some great bits of detail in there, which, I, as I said before, I certainly wasn't aware of. I think one of the bits that I found really interesting was some of the technology they were using to... Yeah. Uh, for surveillance, I mean, there was this uh, piece of kit called Rafter, I think. Could you quickly describe what that could do? Rafter was a very important and interesting piece of technology. And what this did was enable you to take this piece of equipment, Rafter, point it at a radio or other piece of equipment emitting radio waves, and you could work out, A, that it is actually emitting a signal at that time, and two, the frequency on what it's doing. And it's doing it. And therefore, you could intercept the messages. And it came into particular highlight in this case when Gordon Lonsdale returned to this country after his mysterious trip abroad in August, or from the very end of August throughout the whole of September 1960, and he finally returned in the middle of October. And he took up residence in a very small flat in what was then known as the White House, which is just north of um, the Maryland Road. And any listeners, in fact, can go and visit the site today because it's a Malia hotel. And he had a room on the sixth floor. And it was known he was going to return. MI5 linked up with the management of the White House and they decided in the old time on the phrase to case the joint. So they very cleverly uh, got the apartment next door and they then set up a very, very, at the time, high-tech surveillance team based next door. And piecing all the evidence together, it was called Operation Jeremy, according to the newly released documents. 
And this seems to have involved placing a GCHQ employee in the flat next door to the one occupied by Lonsdale with a piece of rafter equipment so that when Lonsdale was either receiving a message from Moscow, um, rafter could pick up the fact that that was being received on the Lonsdale equipment he had in the flat, or he was sending a message, and they could work out that that was happening. And it seems that there was a link, an electrical circuit that was made between the radio which Lonsdale had in his flat and a little alarm which was set up in the flat next door. So the GCHQ guy was woken up um, because a little bell, very quiet bell sounded when Lonsdale was involved in communicating with Moscow. Um, in addition to that, a hole was drilled through the wall of the apartment and a bug um, inserted through the wall into the flat. It was possible to listen in to the conversations which Lonsdale had in the flat, people who came to the flat and so on and so forth. So in a summary, that was what Rafter was. Yeah, no, really, really interesting uh, piece of piece of equipment. Now, so at this stage, we have Lonsdale, who is ostensibly a Canadian businessman um, who MI5 are monitoring. They know that Houghton is providing information to him in conjunction with G, and then they follow Lonsdale, and he leads them to Ricelip to the Krogers. Exactly right, yeah. And this was a slow process, actually, for MI5 because they were really, really concerned. You could understand why, that the spies might be alerted to the fact that they were under surveillance. Harry Houghton, by the way, was extremely fast and loose and didn't really bother much with tradecraft. And this was picked up by MI5. For example, when he came up to London by himself in early August and met Lonsdale and went into Steve's restaurant in Lower Marsh, which was this classic old-style Formica table-topped um, chrome vat steam you know, um, condensing on the windows cafe. Um, mm. He went in there with Harry Houghton, went in with Gordon Lonsdale, and they sat down to have a cup of tea. And the MI5 watchers, as they were known under the former um, Scotland Yard man called Jim Scarden, had to have their wits about them to take a very, very difficult decision. And the decision was, should they follow them in and try and overhear any conversation and they took that risk and it actually produced some really useful intelligence because they sat down at the table next to the one where Lonsdale was sitting with Houghton and one of the MI5 guys had his back to the bench where Harry Houghton was sitting to the extent that as he said in his rather memorable note of it that he could feel Houghton rocking backwards and forwards in his bench as he spoke 
And also he pointed out specifically that Houghton spoke very, very loudly, whereas Lonsdale was very quiet and keeping his voice down and keeping his demeanour down, obviously very much part of his KGB training. And Houghton was really, as I say, pretty fast and loose with his tradecraft and didn't really care too much. But that meeting was really, really important because it revealed for the first time that, first of all, Houghton was heard to say, I've got a lot of work for you tonight. I've got, quote, plenty, unquote, in my attache case. And also they talked about future meetings being on the first Saturday of the coming months. But Lonsdale said, you know, I may not be at one of those meetings. After Lonsdale had been followed, he then disappeared, came back. And what happened was that he took up residence in the White House and MI5 spotted that he wasn't spending every night there. And although they had in their phrase housed him, that meant they'd worked out where he was living, they noticed that he was disappearing off in the evenings westwards. And there was a certain amount of concern in MI5 at the time that the radio communications of their watchers, these are, these are the team largely ex-policemen, going around in various, uh, obviously, marked cars. They obviously had to have number plates. But their job was to tail people. And they had a garage down in South London. And they had um, only recently started getting a few women working for them. And um, this is very much over, again, another example of sexism within the service. And the recruitment of the women was very much over the the dead body of Jim Scarden because he was afraid that um, spending long time, long periods together in, in cars at night might lead to illicit affairs between the male um, watchers and the female watchers. But anyway, there was fairly good evidence, shall we say, that the Russians had worked out a way of intercepting the calls made between MI5 cars. And so introduced new and strict rules about radio communications. So how did MI5 work out that Lonsdale was going out to Ryslip? Well, what they did was have different people who would follow him just a bit further of the journey westwards every time he left. So when they got so far, the watchers would peel off and return to headquarters for fear of being watched. And over a period of about a week and a half, two weeks, they followed him to um, Ryslip, where he got out of the tube. And he walked along a particular street and then disappeared down a side alley. And he was followed along there, but it was just too dangerous to go any further with him. The reason being that at the end of that little cul-de-sac, was a pedestrian-only passageway, and this led into a road called Cranley Drive. And the watchers were afraid that if they followed him along there, if Gordon Lonsdale was a properly trained KGB guy, he might just be waiting in the dark. Um, remember by now it was November time, um, late October, so the clocks had changed. It's dark in the evening, and he might, in effect, spring a trap on them. So they just weren't going to risk it. But they knew that he had gone into Cranley Drive. 
So the next stage was to work out how the hell do we work out where he's gone in Cranley Drive. And this was when there was another intriguing part of the story, enlisting the help of um, a couple in the area to use their house that was opposite to act as a surveillance post over Cranley Drive. One of the intriguing points about the archives is you can you can see each stage of this investigation and you can see the, the characters, the human beings and the dilemmas and the problems posed for them and for MI5 with all these tricky, in some cases, moral decisions that you have to make. And the, the problem for the, the search family, this is a family that lived at a, uh, a small house opposite at one Courtfield Gardens, was, is it okay for us, longer term, to cooperate with the British government, because MI5 obviously were um, pretty secretive about what they were doing, in watching over a neighbour? And I think a lot of the listeners of the podcast would, would sympathise with them. I mean, if you've got a knock on the door one day from a series of people in suits and they're very mysterious about what they're doing, and they say we'd like to keep watch on a neighbour. We can't really tell you what we, why we're doing it, but we want to keep watch on a neighbour from your um, upstairs window. A lot of us would feel uncomfortable about that, and that was what happened with the Search family. And of course, there's also a worry for MI5. Can we trust the searches? I mean, in the end, what what happened was that um, what they did was check out the name of. Um, the man, Mr. Search, living in this house, found out he was an aerospace engineer. Um, a quick security search was done on him. Um, it was clean. Uh, there seemed to be no problems with the family, so they were approached by um, Jim Scarden. He was the head of the MI5 watchers. He was very non-specific about why they needed to keep a watch um, on the street. Um, to see if this man, Gordon Lonsdale, appeared there. Uh, and the searchers, of course, were happy short-term. Within a couple of days, there happened to be an officer who was upstairs at the time, and he came down to have a cup of tea with um, Mrs. Search, and they were in the front room in the, in the bay window in the early afternoon when, pachung, out of the front door of the bungalow opposite came... Gordon Lonsdale, out of the front door of 45 Cranley Drive. And at that moment, MI5 knew that that was where Gordon Lonsdale was going. And, of course, they then started the investigation into the couple living there called the Krogers. And and this is quite interesting because the the house that the intelligence services are using to monitor the Krogers, the family there know the Krogers and Helen Kroger quite regularly pops over the road to have a chat with Mrs. Search. She does. I mean, this is the the moral dilemma and the problem. And I mean, there was one day uh, when uh, Helen Kroger came over unexpectedly. And by this stage, MI5 had been keeping a watch on the house for um, several weeks, and this is after a, a bit of a crisis which developed because, and I was told this story by Charles Elwell's son, and I asked him, you know, what 
stories his father had told him. And he said that his father had, had a very clear recollection of the fact that within a couple of weeks of the searcher's house being used as an observation post, the searchers become uncomfortable about this for fear precisely of what you've just said, Ian, that um, at any moment Helen Kroger might come across the road and find police officers in that house. The sense that they also couldn't tell their friends about what was going on, that they could share this secret with them, because obviously it was putting a lot of pressure on them. And they sent a message back to MI5 saying, look, we are unhappy about this. We are thinking that it might be a good idea if you ended the observation. And the son of Charles Elwell said this obviously set off alarm bells ringing big time in MI5 because it was the only house. And bear in mind that by this stage, um, they knew the Krogers were in cahoots with Gordon Lonsdale and they needed to keep watch on that house. Charles Elwell, the dad, organised a meeting with Mr. Search in a local pub. And it was clear to his dad that things are not looking very good and that MI5 had to make an on-the-spot decision, either to tell the searchers a lot more about what they were doing and why and trust them to keep it secret, or there was a very, very real risk that they'd be thrown out of one Courtfield Gardens. And his dad, Charles Elwell, had to make a split-second decision. And he did. And he took that decision, and that was to trust um, Bill Search, tell him a lot more about it. And this then um, meant that they, they, MI5, were allowed to carry on with the um, surveillance taking place in the bungalow. And so that was what happened. And at the time... I heard the story from Charles Elwell. Of course, there was no documentary evidence to support it at all in the documents. But when the second tranche of documents came out, hidden away right in the documents at the end of 1961 was an interview which Charles Elwell, the spy catcher, did with Mrs. Search. And although it didn't summarise exactly that conversation, you could infer from it that there had been a meeting involving Charles Elwell and the searches about a year before. So the chronology fitted in perfectly with what Charles Elwell's son had told me. Right, right. And I, and I think this is the one of the values in, in the book, is that you don't take any liberties in terms of fictionalising this. Every piece is backed up by evidence in a file or if you're unsure of it you're very clear that it is you know circumstantial well that's the way i was trained as a historian i mean i was lucky enough really really fortunate when i was studying history to be taught by uh, christopher andrew professor christopher andrew of, of cambridge university who many of your listeners will know is a leading historian of the uses and abuses of intelligence. And Chris, as a historian, always underlined the importance of accuracy. 
Well, no, and I think that that comes across, and the, and the way the book is written, this isn't a turgid academic treatise. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> well, it, it's true. I, you know, I, I didn't find it difficult at all to get through it and rattle through it in in a couple of in a couple of days. Oh, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased. Well, it, it 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 is good, and it and it reads it reads like a novel. I'm surprised nobody's made an up to date film of the case because it is a really interesting story. I know there was a uh, I think 1960s black and white uh, film that was made of of the yeah. case, and obviously there's Pack of Lies, the stage play that was turned into a, a TV movie, I think as well. But yeah. uh, nothing up to date. So uh, I don't know whether you've had any inquiry. Well, as the book isn't published yet, you've probably not had any inquiries around uh, turning it into a film. Well, it's strange you should say that, actually, because um, I am very lucky and have sold the uh, TV option rights to uh, the Manchester-based Red Productions uh, and a couple of other um, production houses were interested actually BBC were interested and so was Benedict Cumberbatch's um, film production company but um, Red um, have got the TV option so there is a possibility that um, it might be turned into what I think would be a really riveting TV drama series but of course there are far more options sold than are ever realised and greenlit and turned into production so um, you know, one has to hope. Yeah, the Cumberbatch one's interesting because obviously he's just made that movie about Penkovsky, and there's obviously a link to Penkovsky in this story later on. There is indeed, yeah. No, um, Benedict is in this film about a man called Greville Wynn. Um, the film is called The Courier, and it comes out in America at the end of August in 2020, and I think is scheduled for release in the UK later this year in 2020 as well. And there is indeed a link because... Well, we come on to Greville Wynn in a, in, a, in a little bit. Well, as you can imagine, we've got a second episode with Trevor and there's details of a book giveaway in our show notes. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.